0: Hey, this is Damani Daniel, Chief Imaginator at The Event Nerd. And this is Byron Sanders, President and CEO of Big Thought. Welcome to Casually Creative, conversations about everyday creativity and nerdiness. fam, this is your favorite co-host of Casually Creative, Chief Imaginator at the Event Nerd, Jay Damani Daniel. And this is Byron Sanders, your Uber favorite
1: co-host <laughs> of Casually Creative, Byron Sanders, CEO like the, of
0: Big Thought. Wait, like the like the like the vehicle, the people that bring your food and drive you around. Like hey, that kind of Uber.
1: Have you ever driven in an Uber vehicle? Like like the the brand <laughs> Yes. Nobody yes, does I that. Am. It's not a yes, thing. Are you yeah, drunk yeah. already? This is ridiculous. Keep going. <laughs> no. So Byron's uh, like a co host on
2: call. Anytime you need yeah. a co host, you Uber Byron, just, <laughs> and boom, he shows
1: up.
0: That new app, it
1: hit, yeah. man.
0: Uh, and that voice that you hear that's not your favorite or your, ter- your secondary or arguably your tertiary favorite uh, co host, Byron, um, is none other than uh, Tanner Hawkinsmith. The executive director of the ALS Association of Texas. Tanner, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Texas of the whole thing. Of the whole state. It's big. It's a big deal. That's it. Yeah. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be? Because you hear about people, let's just jump right into that. You hear about people uh, being executive directors or CEOs of nonprofits, and they're usually over a relatively defined uh, uh, geographical area. Yeah. You don't hear often of like, Texas that's that, that's it's big well you know
2: when we were looking uh our chapter actually used to be three separate um about seven years ago but there's a lot of cost efficiencies when you look at combining large regions Real um there's you know uh non-profits tend to have quite a bit of overhead administrative operations sometimes and if you can consolidate that and uh you know administrative expenses and so we just thought it was good and honestly Texas you know it's different though we still run a, a regional leadership model we can get into that later but um uh, because every big city in texas is so incredibly different i mean you guys know if you if you traveled at all what works in dallas is not work in austin or san antonio or houston and then yeah. you got el paso and then you got the panhandle i mean the panhandle is just something completely unto its own i know i lived um, there for
0: four months during covid <laughs> i'm aware
2: yeah i'm sorry um but it's it's hard you know but um so you have to look at regional leadership, but we just felt like the efficiencies you can get in your spending um, are best suited if you have a large chapter like Texas. But it does it creates it creates some some things. I mean, you got to get creative when you look at how you get your staff together, how you communicate with your board, everybody being everywhere. So we did a national conference here a couple of years ago in Houston. They're like, "So did you just?" Did, and I'm in Houston. They know I live in Dallas. And people are like, "So, did you just drive in today for the meeting?" I'm like, "It's nine in the morning,"
1: <laughs> but they don't like, know, man. Yo, like, it was so funny. Like, it, it's like I, I was talking to, to a friend of mine who has no concept of the South <clears throat> because he's only lived in the Northeast, and it was like, "Yeah, yeah, um, you know, I'm. Just, I'll come in, you know, kind of do a little Texas trip. So I'll come in." And then just hop down to Houston real quick, and I was like, Thank "One, you. one does not hop down to Houston. No, no, yeah, that's a that's a day trip, homie, and that's only yeah. if you don't mind driving most of the day." It's
2: yeah, true. and then if you're going Houston. to South Houston, you got to plan yeah. a two day trip. If you're going no, I'm south about? of the city, yep. you're gonna spend an hour and a half in traffic. It's dr- yeah. and then I got you know we have a clinic in El Paso. If I go to El Paso. I got to fly an hour and a half flight and and change the time zone.
0: Wait, Alpaca has a different time zone. Yes, sir. It's right there, bro.
1: Yeah. Wow. Is that Mountain
2: yeah. West? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's yeah. it's insane. But uh, so it create it poses some challenges. Uh, but I think there's more benefit than there are
0: challenges. So, what have you? What has been the thing that you feel talking about the challenges has been the most challenging thing to trying to. I'm not going to say manage, but to lead such a diverse group because you're right. The, going from the Panhandle to Houston, there are very different, uh, there's very different infrastructure. There are very different mm-hmm. needs. So, what do you think is one of the most significant challenges that you've had to overcome, or that you, or that you're currently working through as it relates to leading such a diverse and broad group?
2: You know, I think it's the biggest internals. Uh, the biggest struggle is internal. Um, you know, if your if if your team's not on the same page and move in the same direction it's difficult to move your mission forward, right? And yeah. I mean, organizations, companies deal with that on a day-to-day basis when they're all just down the hall from each other or in the room. So when you expand that and you, re- you maybe see your colleague once or twice a year who you're mm-hmm. in the trenches with and doing, and doing hard work with, and you don't have an opportunity to embrace that shared experience that builds team, that creates huge problems when you're looking at building a strong team. And so, you know, we've, over the past couple of years, have really gone, put a lot of effort, time and money into figuring out ways to embrace our geography um, and use that actually to, to strengthen our team. So we went, we developed our regional leadership model over the past couple of years where um, we implemented hiring regional directors that run each one of our major markets. And they bring yeah. together the whole team that leads both fundraising and a nonprofit, you know, you have you can have your like in corporations. You know you got your sales team. You have your your operational team. Well, a nonprofit, you got your you know you got your fundraisers. You have people that are doing the programs, delivering on the mission day to day. You have your operation staff. So we need people in each one of those large regions that were focused on driving the mission. Right? You got to have a single person in those big major markets that every day they wake up and go to the office, they're thinking about the entire mission. Mm-hmm. Um, because before everybody was thinking about their thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. and you got to have that person that's focused, um, and driving the whole team. And so that really, that, that helped tremendously because you, you brought, and you know, we are able to bridge the gap in that sense of people moving in different directions was we really able to get soaked up with that. So, um, and then we embraced technology, um, you know, before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. we, and so, you know, we've been, um, you know, using a lot of video conferencing systems. We I, honestly, it's it's small, but we jumped on Slack a couple of years ago, and that literally changed the culture of our it's team overnight. Changer. You know, it's a game changer. Um, and so, you know, just small things like that. But it's still a struggle. We're still, we you know, we still deal with it. Um, but I would say, you know, our internal team building, and then you go, then you go to the board, Byron. You know, I yeah. mean, managing a board of directors, right? Yeah. Like, it's challenging when they're there with you. So when you only get to see them. Or talk to them four times a year. Sometimes it's it's that's that's something we're we haven't, we have we're far from perfecting. Yeah, um, you know. But we're 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 searching for it.
1: So you know, I know we just dove in right, and we mm-hmm. kind of hit like we we got into I would say nonprofit two point oh right. Yeah, or, sorry, real quick. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> um, let's let's learn a little bit more about. So you talked about the mission. Yeah. Fam, I want to know, have you ever did a poll uh, to see, like, how many of um, y'all crazy cats out there know what ALS stands for? And what were the results?
2: Oh, man. Uh, So pre-ice bucket challenge.
1: Okay, because we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pre-ice
2: bucket challenge, man. Very little. Most people knew about Lou Gehrig's disease. Okay. Um, okay. And so, um, post Ice Bucket Challenge, you've got a small uptick, but not that much. Um, most people who donated and gave during that time, they just, they, they jumped in, jumped out, right? Which was yeah. expected. Um, and so that's the big thing. I mean, the education part of what is ALS is a massive part of our mission. Um, just educating the general population, so... Yeah, it's it's very small, Byron. We So
1: you I would know, ask you yeah. what what does ALS stand for? And can yeah. you say it three
2: times fast? No, I cannot say it three times fast. I'll say it one time <laughs> slow. Um <laughs> and just and just get because you 'cause you're gonna get one shot at it. Right. Tropic you know, lateral. To blow. Oh, Be see, quiet. Damani he's he's do he's
1: Literally. just set up like a massive important thing that he's about see, to do and, and, and you talk and now, right over him. And now Damani you're there. gonna
2: get half of it. I'm just <laughs> I
0: hate you both. I'm done. An- Goodbye, guys. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right, I'll, I'll Damani. I'll give it to you. We've been friends long enough. I'll just throw it out there: amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Beautiful. Now,
1: now Murphy. repeat it. It's exact. Well, Alexa, um, <laughs> <laughs> what is what is ALS? What is there? ALS? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: No, trust me, that's... man. Going and going from so you know, I went from um, leading a faith-based arts and cultural um, yeah. uh, mission in Dallas yep. to leading and running a met like a health-based nonprofit with a complex disease like ALS. So, trust me, man. I faked it till I made it for about a year and a half. With the medical knowledge <laughs> You know But Because uh, it's something it's, it's difficult You know And you're, you just can scratch the surface Tonight on it But Yeah
1: Yeah
0: So yeah. Break down Break down ALS Right Because people There's the ice bucket challenge Yeah um, Like the, the, the People with a cursory knowledge Of it right. But if you had to Put into the boilerplate Of what ALS is And how it affects people What I'll, would that
2: be Simplest explanation Okay um, It Prevents your brain from communicating with your voluntary muscles, so throw out voluntary muscles to me. What do you guys think are some voluntary muscles?
1: Um, my amazing uh, triceps. Yes.
2: yes. No, actually not. Damn. But I'm sure
1: they're amazing.
2: But so those are.
1: Nice. I was about to say, which part are you disagreeing? I mean,
2: with? they they are. You can you know you can you can choose to flex your tricep or choose you know things like that. So those are okay. tend to be voluntary. Yeah, that's good. Some of the more prominent. Voluntary muscles, though.
1: Voluntary, right?
2: You
0: can control it. Glutes. Uh, your sphincter. Um,
1: yes. Okay. I was right,
0: Byron. Back up off. No,
1: no, now. no. You were. You were. I, that's. You were right. I think it's interesting that's the first place you went.
2: Yes, it is. Now, some are able to control that better than others. Uh, I'm, con- I'm
0: controlling mine right now. <laughs> are, <laughs> are you, you a, a master of controlling your sphincter?
2: Yeah. It's it's I like mean a booty so Kegel. So just think about it. <laughs> You've derailed the conversation. Completely
0: it won't be the last time. <laughs>
2: no. But if you can imagine you can choose to blink when you want to blink, right?
1: That's true.
2: You can choose to clear your lungs when you cough. You got you're getting sick and you cough and you clear your lungs. That's um, true. what we're doing right now talking, how many muscles does it take to talk? Mm. How many muscles does it take to breathe? to chew to swallow those are all things that you choose to do there's only about well, you know one muscle in your body that you really can't control and it's your heart your heart's okay. going to beat whether you want it to or not now some people can master right slowing their heart rate things like that but at the end of the day if you're you cannot stop your heart from beating You can't
1: just like flex my heart
2: right 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 exactly yeah. so so AL, what als does it's a it's a degenerative nerve disease you know they're the cousins of als are some of the um the, the diseases like you see in alzheimer's things like that but it has the opposite effect You're, it, it breaks down your body and it prevents you from communi- your brain communicating with those muscles and they begin to atrophy and you sporadically lose the ability to control those things and it ultimately will always lead to people not being able to breathe on their own digest mm. uh, eat digest food um cough and clear their lungs walk talk blink um And so now that happens different for everybody. Um, What happens first, you know, there's several different types of ALS. Um, uh, One called bulbar onset, which is you notice it in your speech and in your breathing first. So, um, you know, a lot of guys uh, who people that we've talked to that have that is they'll get home and their wives for the past two months have accused them of drinking at work because they get Mm -hmm. home and they're slurring their words throughout the Uh day. Their muscles become Mm -hmm. fatigued. And they're now they're slurring because um, ALS is now, it's, it's beginning to affect their speech. Um, and then they notice that they used to be able to walk up a flight of stairs and breathe it, and they're fine. But now they're having a hard time catching their breath. Um, their lungs are beginning to become affected, and, and, and uh, the, the communication there are, is breaking down. Um, those people tend to go the quickest um, because that's important, right? Breathing is important. The other is lim- the others limb onset. Um, so just imagine one day you go to get in your car and you grab your set of keys and you, your whole life have had no problem turning the ignition in your car. Mm. And one day you grab those keys and for some reason you can't rotate and turn that car. Mm. And literally it happens like that with people just like that. Um, I mean, it can happen just like that or it can be progressive as well. People begin to lose some strength. Um, one of the first guys I met with ALS, he was, uh, he was actually in Iraq. He's a war veteran. You may not know, but uh, veterans are twice as likely to develop ALS than any other person. It's actually yes, a service-connected disease, so we'll, we could talk about that. But he oh, was. Yeah, uh, no, we he, need he, to he, get into that. Yeah. It's so he was running. He was running a mar- he, So he's called the machine because this dude, like, even when he was in Afghanistan, he had to run like a half a marathon a day just to stay in shape. Um. And so he was running, and he had what's called drop foot. All of a sudden, his left foot at the toe. Loses the ability to hold the foot up. And so as he's running, he trips. The foot just drops. Okay. Think about lifting your foot up off the ground, but the toe stays there. Your heel picks up, but your toe doesn't move. Your yeah. foot doesn't move and you trip. Yeah. It's called drop foot. And it happened for him like that. Um, he was obviously, uh, honorably discharged and, um, still with us today. He's, he's actually been able to be fortunate and some for a good amount of time. But, um, that's how it affected him, you know. Um, diagnosis generally takes about twelve months to diagnose the disease and then from first symptom to passing, the average is about two to five years. Really? Yeah.
1: So so,
0: so, so what's the more tra- what's the fatality rate? Hundred percent.
2: Wow. Now there are now here's the deal, there are cases. It's not a not enough cases to take it out of the hundred percent fatality rate. Yeah. But there are a handful of cases and we've researched them all of people getting ALS and then all of a sudden it just stops. We don't know why. Wow. Um, so it's it's a devastating disease. Now it, now the, the disease rate's only about four to six per one hundred thousand people. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a rare disease in that capacity, but you can imagine the impact it has at a hundred percent mortality rate.
1: Yeah, I mean um, somebody you, you know you get that <clears throat> you get that diagnosis. I can only imagine like you know. Um, so I, I have a family member going through pancreatic cancer right now. Uh-huh. Right, and you know, it's one of the worst kinds, right? <clears throat> and so I would imagine that, you know, you go through, you, you, you're like, what in the world is going on with my toe? Right. And then you, you come, you know, you go into the doctor's office, and then you come out, and the world after has got to feel completely different.
2: <sighs> yeah, and the, I mean, the unfortunate thing is, is it takes about 12 months to diagnose the disease because most mm-hmm. doctors are not educated enough. And so the amount of people that I've talked to that have gone through back surgeries, um, carpal tunnel syndrome surgeries, oh, wow. because um, it mim- it can, the, the symptoms can mimic other things. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like you have to basically, because we don't have what's called a biomarker. Um, so with cancer, you can get a biopsy. Or blood tests, you know, things like that. They can look at white blood cell counts. They can look at the biopsy and tell you, okay, you have this type of cancer. ALS has no biomarker. You can't take blood, a urine sample, or tissue sample and figure out you have ALS.
1: No genetic Um, anything that you can do? So we have
2: about 10% of the ALS population. We've identified a handful of genes that carry the ALS, uh, carry the ability to develop ALS, but the rest are what we call sporadic. We have no idea why. And even in the, and even in the genetic cases, we have no, idea. it's not just because you have the gene does not mean you're going to get ALS either. Mm, There are, there have, and this is a lot of research we're doing is there's got to be environmental factors that are triggering that gene to begin to develop the disease. So, um, it's kind of a combination, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a super complex disease. um, Um, but the diagnosis thing is hard, man. Um, yeah. you know, the last thing a doctor wants to tell you is you got two to five years and normally yeah. you get sent to a specialist and there are very few ALS specialists. And honestly, a lot of times people figure out they have ALS before they see one of those specialists because they Google the doctor they're getting sent to. And yeah. it's an ALS specialist.
1: Yeah. They're like, Oh
2: yeah. You know? And so yeah. they go, they get tested and then, um, yeah, it's, I've been in the room a couple of times um, mm. when a doctor has given somebody a diagnosis. And um, talk about checking your own self and your mm. own mortality is when you witness someone else being told they've got two to five years to live. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think I realized when I took this job how incredibly selfish I was with my time.
1: Mm. Talk about that.
2: Yep. You know, um, so... That same guy I told you about, that young that young veteran at ALS, he had two small kids, mm-hmm. and uh, we were shooting a PSA at his house, and um, his kids were at school at the time, and he's at this time he's uh, fully what's almost called locked into where he has very little function at all. He okay. can blink, he talks with a computer screen by moving his eyes. With well, technology, is amazing, mm-hmm. um, but he's no longer the machine, right? Um, and his kids, uh, well, so his kids come home. They run in, um, they jump up on his lap. Um, and you know, he does what he can to engage with them. Mm. And then their mom comes and grabs them and cause we're, you know, we're doing the PSA thing and he talks to his computer and he says, Tanner, what hurts me the most is my kids will never know the machine. And he looks at this picture of who he was and he goes, I can't, if I, I've never, I've never been able to hold my son. I've never been able to hold my daughter, and so there's times when I come home from work, and I'm stressed out and I'm tired, yeah, and I don't want to engage. And and I think a righteous sense of guilt will come over me and say, "Man, the people I serve every day, what would they do in their mind or if they were if they were me right now and had an opportunity to engage with the people around them?" Mm. That's a that was a I mean and trust me, man. I am far from perfect at it still. I, sometimes I, I I let that righteous guilt come on me and I brush it off, but it isn't, I mean, we all, you know, we've all got our personal time. I'm just being real. Right. Like, but it is a check, um, because these people that are faced with the disease, they would give anything to have another moment to embrace, to have engagement with the people around them. Um, and it's a man that checks you quick. Wow.
1: Man, you, you, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're in that work right now, bro. Yeah, it's,
2: and I mean, the amount of people that, I mean, you lose people all the time. And that's yeah. hard, man. You know, it's just, it's, uh, that's hard. My, my, my frontline employees talk about PTSD, Yeah, serving people every day. I mean, and this gives me so much more of a greater appreciation of people who work in hospice places, people who embrace those who are, who are on their last day. Um, I mean, man, those people are, I mean, they're some of the best people to be
1: around. Um, yeah, learn a lot. So tenant, I mean, you know, um, what, what in the world draws a person into this work, right? Like, like (laughs) how, how does a person, um, who, of, of all the things that one could do, who goes to say, I want to work. In an organization that raises money for awareness and uh, research, and um, uh, pushing for the some semblance or, or um, <clears throat> effort toward a cure for one of, a, uh, a, one of the more rare diseases, but one that has such an impact on people's lives, that's what I want to do. How 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 in the, how in the hell do you get here? And
0: can, I, can I put a can I put a, a, a tag on that? also break down like go back a little bit and tell a little bit of, in that Tell a little bit about your history because uh in reading through you know in knowing you and in, in reading through your, your your paperwork this is not like a thing that you decided 20 years ago i'm that's gonna right. be that's right in the medical yeah. nonprofit world like walk us through all that
2: yeah so man i you know i actually went to seminary um which is interesting um
1: seminary is yeah. interesting
2: yeah, it's just interesting it's all together. One of I the more like I, interesting
1: experiences. I literally
2: you, felt like I was at church camp for four years, you know. Um, yeah, it was. That, it that was, sounds exhausting. It was a dreadful it experience. It does. Um, but I learned a lot about myself. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily, I was in a, I was in a, if we're going real far back, um, I was in a studies that allowed me to interact with some amazing people. So I did what was called the uh, cross-cultural communications degree. So basically, I got to study with missionaries from all around the world and spend time in uh, Turkey, Morocco, all over the world. Um, I, I emphasized in the Arabic and Islamic culture. I took Arabic as a second language. I can speak very little of it now, um, but I got to experience these guys who, you know, they were they were missionaries, mm-hmm. but they weren't what you what we think of today an American style missionary is, which is just evangelizing people trying to build American style churches these guys were people who truly understood the social impacts our faith needed to make in these communities and Mm -hmm. it wasn't about just building churches it was about truly making an impact in the community and so these people I mean these guys I learned so much from them and um, I learned that day to day we are faced with choices that will either improve our community or move it in the wrong direction right like we have the power to we have the power to do that and so the work that they were doing was truly impacted me and i kind of decided from that point forward that regardless if i go forward and i work in a faith-based arena if i work at a church or if i don't um i want my work to matter Um, i want my daily my daily my what i do on a daily basis to matter now that doesn't have to that doesn't have to be your profession you know, I mean, people make people who are bankers make daily impact in the community every day. Right. Like, so you don't yeah. have to choose it as a profession. Sure. Um, you know, but I cho- I made that choice. And so um, uh, right after college, I moved down to this uh, to, down to Dallas I, from Minnesota. Um, I, I went to school in Minneapolis um, and there's a group of what people school in Minneapolis, uh, North Central University. It's a small private, okay. small uh, Christian school there. Cool. Um, but. Uh, you know, we, we came down and we had a crazy idea that the Christian faith could look different than what it's you see, in the, and what, <laughs> what you see, yeah, right. That uh, that um, it didn't have, to, especially like in the Bible Belt in Dallas, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, if you want to plant a church, you go to the suburbs. You make really fancy, awesome music and have a coffee shop, right. and uh, you know, you buy a big piece of property. And hey, have a big, and then you
1: got to buy some new jeans. You got, okay. oh man, you got to,
2: <laughs> and you got to have a bedazzled cross on the butt of those jeans. That's right, bro. And, you know, you know. Just, <laughs> bedazzled
1: uh, butt jeans?
2: Yeah, yeah. You got to yeah. have it all, man. You know, there's a, there's definitely a criteria for that. That's right. Um, I was not wired that way. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm not trying to begrudge people that choose to do that at all. That's, that's their thing. And it connects maybe
1: really well. Yo, I community. have bedazzled butt jeans. Hey man. All the I'm power sorry. To wait, see, what? Brother. Yeah. What? <laughs> Let's circle back to that. I don't. But, I, mm. but, I, but if I did, I'd wear them proudly.
0: But hey man, if you, you got it, so you don't have to. I'm gonna go buy some
1: tonight uh, on the internet. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. But uh, it just wasn't my it wasn't my thing, and it wasn't anybody else's thing who were doing what we what we decided to do. And so we looked at a community like Deep Ellum, man, and everybody at that time, um, saw Deep Ellum as a thorn in the side of Dallas. Yeah. It was a black smudge, right? And there's so much beautiful history wrapped up in Deep Ellum. I mean, I don't know if you guys know the deep history of Deep Element and what hey, it can yeah. actually be celebrated for. I mean, a little bit. You know a little bit of a it, little, but little I think most, peop- most people probably don't, though. I mean, that well, was... A lot of people do not. I mean, the, the one of the, what, the first-owned black building in the state of Texas, Union Bankers Building? No, no, no,
0: the, no, no not first-owned. Let's clarify. It's one of... It's the first building designed signed. by an African-American architect yes. in I the mean, state of Texas.
2: It's, it's, it's a, I mean, just that deep history, and not only that, but that's also not just for Black history, but for racial reconciliation. I mean, this is where con- cultures combined it where they they came, and there was it was a beautiful thing. If you look back at those old pictures of like Elm Street, you know, you have all the Jew- Jewish parlors and things like that right next to the dance halls, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of beauty wrapped up in that. And obviously, Deep Elm went through ups and downs throughout its history, but I think when we looked at Deep Elm, I saw the beauty. Um, and I always believe that when you have places like Deep Elm or people like Deep Elm, um, mm-hmm. man, you can make great impact, and you can people can see change. And so we decided to look at what are the strengths of our neighborhood, because yeah. everybody likes to look at the weaknesses, right? When you're trying to do community development, people are like, "Well, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. How can you so make the different. things? How can we make the things that don't work better? Right?" Instead of saying, what are the strengths of the community and how can we focus on those strengths? And when you do that, when you empower the strengths of the community and you bring them up, you actually see everything else do everything else rise. Right. Yeah. And so it's a different way of looking at it. And we chose to focus on those things. And at that time, you know, entrepreneurship, um, the art, commerce, the community. I mean, the the community is so tight there. So we built a cultural center um, called Life in Deep Ellum. Now it's still running and operating, doing great things for the community. Um, and so, you know, we, I did that for close to 10 years, um, was really proud of the work. Um, I'm still proud of the work they do today, the impact that we were able to have with the community and true partnership they have with the community. Um, but to be honest, Byron, I took the long, well, I took the detour to answer this question. Um, and I'm just going to be real honest and transparent. Um, the reason I took this job originally is because I was tired of what I was doing. I had no creative energy left. Um, And I wanted to do something that still connected me with people um, with a, with a mission that I could understand and get behind. But it was a step in, it was honestly just a step in faith that it was a good decision. Um, But man, I I left life in Eat bellum because I have no, I had no energy left anymore, you know? And I think you've got to, I had to recognize that. And just say it's time for me to step out, step aside and let a new, you know, a a new group of leaders come through and make an impact. It's hard then when you start in a place like ALS and walk into people's houses like um, the machine and not say this is something that I can put my heart behind.
1: So so if we if we if we kind of go back to that, that that thing when you said, okay, this is my decision point. I have no creative energy left where I am talk about that man because it sounds like creative energy is one of the things that is your um, your fuel your driver your um, yeah. you know nitro so what is, what does that even mean creative energy
2: you know what's interesting is um, I answer one of Damani's questions is where when am I most creative and yeah. I said a lot of times I'm in a crisis um, and uh, I was done with crisis man. There was so mm-hmm. much that happened in the community of Deep Elm. Um, so much things we had to be creative and build and do, and um, it plateaued and it was working, and I just lost it. You know what I mean? Like it was just like I woke up in the morning. I was at staff meetings, and my mind would would, would drift and feel disconnected. And um, when you get like, when I just I just tell myself every t- every day if I get like that, it's time to seriously question why I need to be here anymore. Because the mission that you're working for, whether it's a corporation or a, or a nonprofit, deserves better, right? And it's mm-hmm. not a negative. It's I think people yeah. people think bad, you know, they, they wake up in the morning, to think that, and it's like, I'm a bad person. or um, And it's not. It's just a self-realization that um, it's probably time for someone new. It's probably time for something different. And yeah. that's okay. That was, you know, I had to look at myself in the mirror and say that this mission of Life of New deserves something more. And I'm not it right now. After ten years, I'm not it, and somebody else needs to take it.
1: How do you How do you make sure that you know it's It's almost like you're saying, <clears throat> you know, I was my tank was empty, yeah, right. Um, but you still care about the thing that you had poured so much of yourself into over the yeah. years. How How do you How do you know, you know, who to transfer that to? Oh man,
2: I just looked at it as not my responsibility, to be honest. Oh, I had a board of directors. Yeah, um, and they're they're entrusted for that stuff for a reason. Mm-hmm. They were chosen for those positions for a reason, um, and I think too much influence into that process will do damage for an organization. I think if you're a leader and you built, and it's time for you to go. Yeah, um, if you provide too much influence on the on the transition, um, it can damage things. You just gotta go. It's just time to go. Um, Now you can give insight and help, and I did. I worked alongside uh, Joel and Rachel Triska, who are leading the effort there now, for about a year in
0: transition. Um, But um, it was good. It was a good thing, you know. Um, You you talked about being a faith-based arts and cultural organization. You had some some background in the arts uh, as well, specifically um, as a member of show choir. Uh, (laughs) How? (laughs) I always like to yeah. just drop that anywhere. Right? Glee club? Is this what we oh, talk brother. about now?
2: Ah, oh, yeah, man. was jazz hands
0: and everything, brother. Yeah. So how have you seen, uh, you know, th- th- there's an obvious creative expression that comes in sequin vests and uh, six-part harmony. How right. have you uh, applied, if not that exact same amount of creative energy to what you're doing now, right? Because people typically put... Um, The work that you're doing now as a nonprofit, this like science-based nonprofit, uh, and they feel like it's juxtaposed against the creative, arts, artsy-fartsy, mealy-feely nonprofit of the kind of arts and culture. Have you seen one? Have you seen your arts experiences influence how you approach or deal with the challenges, or not even the challenges, but uh, have you seen it impact what you do now?
2: Uh, yeah, man. Um, you know, I think people who have traditionally worked in the health nonprofit sector look at problems in one way and they try to solve them in that linear way. Um, and I think it provides me the opportunity to look at problems we see in our arena and just approach them in a different way, in a different capacity. Um, because, you know, working at a place like life in D. Bellum, my experience in the arts and culture world provided me an opportunity um to expand my creative mind and how to solve crisis in different ways. Um and and so it provides me an opportunity now to step into this world and just look at problems through a different lens. Um and you know, and so oftentimes so I'm an idea guy and that that's just what gives me energy, it's what's me fueled by If you're an idea person, it probably drives your staff crazy, and it did at first. The staff I brought in, um, I was used to having, like, these – just bring the staff in and, man, just start throwing ideas out there, right? Like, well, if we are crazy, what would we do and just start working on all these ideas? What I didn't realize was my staff at the time would go leave a meeting like that, and they felt like they had to do everything I talked about. Mm. You know, and so I also had to learn how to tone down my things, say, guys, this is just the time for us to dream. And, and so I realized that it was just too much at first, and we got to slow that process down and take people along. Um, but, uh, and I think one other thing that was really important is my working in a nonprofit like the arts and culture world is really, it's so, so relationship based and relationship focused. Yeah. Um, it provided me an opportunity to bring that into what can seemingly be, a very uh, static feeling or, you know, stuffy feeling type of nonprofit. Um, so, yeah. And honestly, the event experiences, too. I mean, how many events did we do at Demonte Life in Deep Elm? I mean, I don't know, man. Right? So I got to bring in some flair, a little bit of flair to our event experience. A little bit of flavor? A little bit of flavor, you know? Dash, dash of flavor? <laughs> a little dash of flavor, but... Now I well, I'm super proud of growing up in my home state of Iowa where like you can be it's fully now surprisingly people don't know this about Iowa but it's an extremely progressive place. Like we had gay marriage way before California. Like there's a T shirt company. Yes, there was a T really? yes, a T shirt company uh, they're big now, they're called Ray Gun out of Des Moines. And they're one of their first shirts they made a bunch of money on was says Iowa, way gayer than California. Um and so <laughs> little I an opportunity
1: fact.
2: Yeah. I had an opportunity to grow up in a place to where you could try things out, and it was okay. And so, you know, you had, I, I could be in show choir, but I was also the middle linebacker on the football team. I wrestled. I did those things, and it was it was celebrated and embraced. Nice. Um, Texas is different, um, you no, know. I don't know, what you, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you either play football or you don't exist. I think it's kind of what, you know, it's one of those things. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll say, I'll say that and I got to not take myself seriously. You just got to try things, you know? Um, and so I think in the, and in the arts world too, I think one of the best things I learned was failure is more accepted. You can fail fast Mm. in the arts and cultural world. And when you're doing community development stuff, because you got to try things to make it work. Um, and so you're not afraid to risk, to try different things And to box it up and put it away if it doesn't, and to celebrate if it does. But you can walk home at the end of the day, and you're like, well, I tried. You know, and Mm -hmm. I think when you get into a nonprofit like I'm in now, they tend to be risk adverse. Mm. Um, uh, And so, you know, I can bring a bit of my entrepreneurial spirit into that, my creativity, my desire to risk, um, and my desire to push forward with urgency um, and do those things in a smart intelligent way you know you're never going to put your organization at risk but um you've got to look at different things differently and i was given the opportunity from a young age um to to just try new things and and to and to fail fast and to move forward and you know i think bringing that into my current role um has been good um it's been healthy um and so i think that's where i, I bridged the gap mostly with, my, with between the arts and cultural world into
1: doing something like this that's dope yeah so let so so you got to ALS twenty thirteen, right? Yep. Yeah, it was ALS twenty thirteen, you were ALS Iowa. Correct. Right? My home state. Home state. Rep your hood. Yes, sir. And um twenty fourteen something happened. <laughs> what, yeah. What what the what the hell was that, bro? Yeah, Talk so a little that, about about what it was like to be in the seat. You just got there, you know. You've been there about a year, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little more, and you're like, okay, I got a plan. And then <laughs> somebody,
2: yeah. Mike Tyson's famous for saying everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. That's well, right. This, this was a, this is more of a <laughs> this was a this was a love tap in the face from the whole world. That's um, right. It was more of a uh, warm embrace. I, yeah. You know, so I took over the Texas role on august 1st of 2014 okay okay um that's when it all started so literally um i'm not ashamed to say that i follow our our amazing brother jt justin timberlake on twitter um a little you know uh so that's one of those things where i embrace it's okay that's Um, right i'm pretty sure we'd be listen jt
1: there is nothing wrong with being a
2: jt choir. yes Yes, he was. Nah, you know,
0: um, he was also in show choir. So.
2: Um, so, anyways, I'm in San Antonio. I was doing kind of a tour of the state, meeting all the staff, things like that. And I was in a hotel room, and I see, and we had gotten some rumblings of people doing this thing and people donating some money. But oftentimes you think, you know, it's like this. It's kind of like. What thing you know, are we talking
1: about, by the way?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. The Ice Bucket Challenge. Boom! The, the cultural phenomenon that happened that literally, we'll get into it, has changed and shaped the way Facebook now raises money online. That's right. Um, so anyways, uh, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, Justin Timberlake from his tour tweets a video of him and all of his friends doing the Ice Bucket all, all of his like backup dancers, this whole crew doing the Ice Bucket Challenge, and he challenges Jimmy Fallon. I was like, oh, well, uh, this might be a little something to this. And then the yeah. next night on The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon does the Ice Bucket Challenge with the Roots, and puts our our uh, ALSA.org as the like the main donation site. And I was like, uh, I gotta go back to Dallas. I've gotta figure some things out. And then it was just, I mean, then it was just like an escalate. It was a it was a train that left the station, and you could not stop it. And literally, this is where, you know, I, I love Malcolm Gladwell. When you look at The Tipping Point, it's one, one of the books I love from him. Yes. When things hit a tipping point in culture, there's like literally no stopping them from happening. And what's great about that campaign, and most people don't know, is we had nothing to do with it. I know. And, that's, know why, and that's why it worked. Because it was driven by people. Who loved their loved ones with ALS? They were connected. There was a couple, like two, got three different guys in the Northeast. Um, one of the guys in particular, Pete Frades, who, who we just lost this year, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a former uh, baseball player, played for Boston College, was really connected to the sports world in Boston. Yeah. Um, and he got a cut, and a couple of guys from like the Patriots and Red Sox did it and challenged people. And then it got in that sports world, then it just kind of escalated real quick. Um, and then five weeks later, nationally, we had raised 115 million dollars in five weeks.
1: Wait a minute, I need you. I need you to tell me that one more time. Hit me with that number again.
2: 115 million dollars in five weeks.
1: Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Tanner. Say that number one more time. 115 million. Bro, listen. That's, I'm, that's a lot of millions. That's so <laughs> many millions. millions. I'm a I'm a nonprofit guy, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, at the end of every fiscal year, you're thinking about okay, so what are our fundraising budget projections? How much we think we can get next year? Yeah, right? yeah. And then you use that to base your 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 next year's budget on for planning. Right. And then you get that passed by the board. Blah blah blah. Fam, how much was how much did y'all plan on raising that <laughs> year?
2: So uh, so just to kind of clarify, our organization is federated, so. The nat- uh, we have a federated system, so it's almost kind of like a franchise deal. Yep. But, so every chapter has our independent board, finances, budgets, and the national office does as well. So I think nationally at that time, we were raising less than $60 million a year as, as a whole organization. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? And so um, it's just like now that $115 million, is, that's a calculation of all the money, chapters, right, and the money with the chapters, yeah. national, everything. Um so it was like, literally we had to hire temp workers to process checks, both at the national and the chapter level. Um, ours and what was very present is our technology did not support this either. Uh, websites, donation pages crashing. Um, that it was just, I mean, you know who, you know who loved this was our credit card processor. Yes, they uh, did. You know, <laughs> Trust me, we back negotiated a different rate on that shit. Oh, Sorry, you, you, that you stuff. Got, right, explicit. Okay, you can
0: say shit. It's fine. Um, put, we, because we it was little, like,
2: yeah. it's like you guys just made so much money. We're going to need a bit of that back. Um, you know, Yeah. but it, it, it was, I think one thing that positioned us really well is we had a beautiful story to tell. You did. And so, um, and we had passionate people to tell that story. And so, you know, it was just... Like literally at that point, we had no plan of how to manage it. It was a day to day thing. We'd get updates daily on, you know, uh, requests from media. Everybody's doing interviews. Like literally, my whole day was packed with just doing interviews with people. You know, um, and it was just, and then you know, just like getting a random, I got a hundred thousand dollar check, and it's just like I don't know, and. Then the corporation who sent the hundred thousand dollars doesn't even want to talk to you. They're like, "We just gave it because we, you
1: know, just here you go." So, so but, th- I, I gotta, I gotta take, <laughs> I gotta take a real quick pause here because this is, yeah. this is, this is what I'm gonna tell you what happened. I'm gonna take you back to 2014, Damani. Yeah, okay. Okay. So as a Bring guy down. who's in the middle of of nonprofit land, right? So I've been doing, I've been uh, head of the foundation over at Dallas Education Foundation for a period of time and uh and this was either right before or right after I'd moved over to the bank either way you know it's fresh for me what it yep, yep. what how hard it is to raise money yep. in anything okay so this is the very first time that a viral um um like wave of something stupid like <laughs> dumb right dumb dumb so dumb i'm going to pour <laughs> Ice cold, cold water, water
0: on, on myself.
1: And and then, and then you know, so imagine an alien comes and they're like, okay, then what happens? There's like a chemical reaction with humans, with ice water nope. that does something amazing that, that, that is so meaningful to the world. No. No. That's it. That's it. I'm cold and it's funny. Yeah. And drops you know some what? dollars, right? Byron,
2: Byron, you know what it did? It connected people. You know what,
1: Tanner? I, there's a lot of things that connect people. I, connect I'm just saying. Or, I'm just saying. Uh, but you, like, you connect the dots. Connect the dots. I mean, but here's, Legos. But here's the deal. It, th- their act it's connected Lego. them, and they made them
2: feel like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And there's not a lot of things that do that. And Trust they could, me. They
1: could... I know. And I get exactly <laughs> What you're talking about? Because every single nonprofit executive watched oh, that, yeah. and we were like, "What, what the hell had. can I do to create something stupid?" Like people were thinking about, like, "Do you? Do you? Do I got to break a toe? I'll break a toe. I'll break a toe for, for 115 million. I'll break, break more toe. than a toe. <laughs> the toe break, like the bo- the bowling ball drop challenge. Ha ha! This was hilarious. I have multiple metatarsals. Destroyed. And, somebody me, I, give me, I had some.
2: I, I had my colleagues, like the other nonprofits, texting me, being like, "What the <laughs> f- is happening?" And like, how can I get some of that? You know, I'm just like, the amount of the amount of marketing consultants that reached out to us after that. Yeah, and wanted first of all do studies, and then also like, hey, we can help you recreate that. <laughs> you know, so lying. Like, uh,
0: they're lying. They're lying.
2: Just pay us a million dollars, and right. we can. Of uh, your one
0: hundred and fifteen,
2: you know, and we can recreate that uh, yeah. very viral natural phenomenon to happen. Yeah, like, yeah.
1: You know oh. what? And not. You know what? Never before, never since have we seen anybody recreate exactly the kind of momentum that that got in five freaking weeks. They right. they to 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 your own admission, you raise more money in. Less than a quarter than yeah. it took for, well, then you were expecting to raise over the course MVP. of your entire year. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's,
2: it was weird to be in it, to be honest.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it was, it was just strange. It was a little surreal. I'm all of a sudden get like, I'm on, I find myself on NPR and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing on <laughs> NPR, you know? And it's like, it's just, it, it was, it was bizarre. But honestly, like people in the ALS community, it was the first time they felt like people maybe were gonna understand what they were going through. Mm, yeah, you know, it was like and one woman, you know, said every time I turned on the TV, it felt like I got a warm hug because wow. finally, people, you know, I mean, it was so it was empowering for that community to see, you know, the guy who really got um, who really pushed forward into being one of the main founders, Pete frades It came out because when he got diagnosed, he was twenty eight years old. And he got diagnosed twenty eight. Oh, yeah. Newly married, he turned to the doctor and he said, "This is before the Ice Bucket Challenge." He said, "How much is it going to cost to cure this thing?" Hmm. Well, and the doctor said, "On average, from you know, from finding treatments to pat to getting a drug, generally it's about two and a half billion dollars." And he goes, "I'm going to start tomorrow." And like wow. a week later, the Ice Bucket Challenge hit, and he was one of the guys who started it. You know, shut it's, up.
0: Yeah. Do you know? Do you know? Yeah. Like, and obviously, like said, this is something. This is something that was created naturally do you know and if you don't that's fine but do you know how pete and the other people that were involved like how did they get to this really this place of creating a really dumb i mean it it was a frat boy thing like it felt like very much like a frat boy let's dump ice on each other (laughs) well so it it was actually (laughs) it
2: was actually some other people were doing it as like a funny just internet challenge thing to do apparently at the time and these guys just took it and said hey do this And raise awareness and donate some money for ALS. That was it. ALS get to
1: be the thing. I dude. There's
2: been so much study. It's just, it's one of those things. I don't have, like, literally so much research has gone behind it to figure it out. Um, But it was really focused in on three main guys up in the Northeast, like I said before, that had enough cultural influence with people, Mm. you know, societal influence that they people, you know, just kind of domino affected that way and caught fire but you know, and it's, it's been interesting to be post ice bucket challenge, the amount of people that were like, okay, so now you're good. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, it's like, so you're, you're good. And I'm like, uh, we are far from good. (laughs) Like it's so far from good, but this is a great start. (laughs) Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was weird.
0: So you talked earlier, you talked about, um, how uh, service members are impacted um, yeah. by by uh, ALS at a disproportionate rate to others. Talk a little bit more, kind of about that, because cause were any of those three guys that were up in the Northeast were any of them servicemen? Obviously, I know you said that one guy was more in sports, but no, no.
2: So they, they um, none of those guys are servicemen. Okay. Um, but uh, so veterans it took, makes up about sixty percent of the ALS population served active military duty. Um and so when you have a rare disease like that and over six and, you know, close to sixty percent of your disease population has a single common denominator. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, some research projects that went into it and statistically it's like basically impossible for that to happen. And so some, you know, there's without there being a connection, you know, yeah. but it leads back to environmental factors contributing to ALS. Um and so there's a lot of study going into it right now. We have good partnership with the Department of Defense and other things because um, it also costs our federal government a lot of money because if you have ALS and you served active military duty, you get full benefits for life, like you were shot in active mm. duty. And so, um, on said. average, it costs our federal government two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to care for someone with ALS. Wow! And so, wow. obviously, they have a vested interest in researching why this is happening. Um, and so, we've got a good partnership with the, both the VA and the DoD, you know, helping fund research.
1: I had no idea about um, that connection, man. That is, yeah, uh, man,
2: it's, it's, it's super, you know, they, they face a battle when they're in the military, then they come home and face this and it's devastating. Mm, um, wow. um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, um, but outside of that, it's real, no respect to persons, man. I've met, you know, we, uh, in my Iowa chapter, we had a 14 a year old girl pass of ALS. Mm. Um, then you have an 89, you know, it's all, it goes all the way up to extremely elderly. So, yeah. um, you know, it can happen to anybody.
1: But it's, Um. it's, it's interesting to me that, um, you know, we talk about the ice bucket challenge and, you know, obviously we're very interested in creative processes. Yeah. Like what, what really is a spark that gets people going. Um, so you have that moment in time and it really is a flash. And even though y'all raised two X plus of what you were trying to raise over the course of that year, um, that's still one year, you know, and And then to the point you brought up earlier, you're not good because we ain't done. So how do you how do you how do you build on that? What do you how do you take the momentum? How do you move on from there in a way that that allows you to creatively capture the opportunity that was there? And then also recognizing that it's not something that you're going to be able to ever, ever, ever do again.
2: Yeah. um, I think we had to learn how to be grateful for what happened but not focus on it as something that is going to make us successful in the future. And that was a really hard realization to come to. Um, I think when it was first happening, we thought this is something that we're going to be able to build on for years to come. Now, financially, yes, you can make right investments and make that money work for you and to continue to build, you know, to continue to build. Absolutely. But as far as building a infrastructure of huge new donors and constituents and people, Um, You know, that's something I think we had to kind of let go of and understand that it was a beautiful thing. We are extremely grateful for it. I think we've, as an organization, invested that money wisely into new research projects, funding our our local services. We provide services uh, locally to people with ALS. We've done that really well, and I'm proud of who we are as an organization for doing that. Yeah. Um, But uh, we've got to still push the envelope creatively and how we still... Push a rare disease into the population of, of people, you know. Um, yeah. We know there was tons of surveys that went out to to people who took the Ice Bucket Challenge and donated. And a very small percentage said that they wanted to continue to be involved, hmm. um, and that's okay. You know, you can't expect everybody to love and be empowered by your mission, right? Like right. it's just not an expectation you can have. Um, and so, how do you capitalize on the publicity? How do you capitalize on the new public awareness of the disease in general, I think one of the biggest things that did is, made, is it brought it out of the dark a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so you don't have to you, you don't have to start the conversation with people like, "Hey, I'm here to talk about ALS," and they're like just blank stares on their face. Right. There's at least a recognition now where before there was no recognition, um, mm. but uh, we still have a lot of work to do. There's still yeah. um, much much work to do, so.
0: You know, it reminds me of uh, when I was in college. Was when I think it was Gap started doing the red campaign. Yeah. Yep. Um, where they were selling a line. They partnered with Bono and U two, and they had a were selling a line of clothing. And I remember I um, got upset uh, in college, right, in the self righteous way that you are in college. Yeah. Uh, because people were buying these clothes from the Gap uh, because it made them feel good about donating to whatever i can't even remember what the charity was because it was aids right it was was aids awareness and research Uh, and i got upset i'll never forget someone checked me and said why are you upset i said because people should be given because people should be giving because they want to give because they believe in the mission not just because they want to buy a nice pair of jeans and they said and then someone said to me why does that matter if money is being raised towards an end to benefit and and, and make significant impact in our country and if people don't want to if people buy a pair of jeans to do it, why is that bad? And in a lot of ways I feel like to your point, like that's some of what happened with the ice bucket challenge. Like there were these people who were like, I'm gonna dump some ice on my head, who wouldn't be able to have a, a cogent conversation uh, about ALS, but it still it still mattered because maybe, you know, I, if I had the ice bucket challenge and I didn't want to stay plugged in, but then Byron saw it and Byron didn't want to get plugged in, but he did it. And then Byron's cousin saw it and Byron's cousin was like, oh, I need to find out more about ALS and really dig in. It really speaks to the, uh, the how, how we have to think differently about how we approach the challenges because yeah. just because it's not something that we directly align with doesn't mean that it's not something we should still be a part of because we never know who two or three uh, steps removed from us is going to be impacted and is going to be able to make a positive difference in the long run? Absolutely.
1: Because so at the end of the day, one hundred and fifty million dollars is one hundred and fifty million dollars. Was it fifty or fifteen? It's fifty. 50.
2: It, so uh, no. So our our organization was one hundred and fifteen. Now internationally, so internationally, two hundred fifty million dollars to all the different ALS organizations across the world and those are right,
0: right Byron. no you're that right.
1: deserved a michael jackson uh, screech Woo! and that was 250 yeah. million yeah. Do you know how many do you know how many individual
2: facebook videos were loaded during oh, that man. time 17 and a half million individual facebook videos
0: oh my god y'all can't see our faces because it's not a video podcast but uh, literally, Byron literally, and,
2: Facebook yeah. changed the way they display videos because of the ice book, ice bucket challenge.
0: I don't have words, I don't have words. <laughs> like Byron's it's... going in the office tomorrow, like, guys, guys, <laughs> paint splatter challenge, do paint, paint on me now,
1: yeah, black IP challenge. we doing yeah. it tomorrow. A hot,
0: a hot pot, a black eyed a black IP, or the grits, opposite, oh,
1: grits. We gonna do a hot grits. grits challenge. Don't
0: do um, that because there'll be some. There'll be some high school kids who will do yeah, it after they, gonna, you know, third degree burns. Do
2: people, I think there's might even be some people who like got like critically injured from doing their ice bucket challenges. Oh,
1: multiple people did. That yeah. was there's the funniest part, or what, dude? There are some
2: great fail videos out there. Yes, you gotta watch them. And they usually Patrick involve one of
1: my favorites. people trying to do it from heights that were completely unreasonable, irrational, and they just did too much. And yeah. I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. These are the kind of videos that I like. Matter of fact, I'm not going to do the challenge, but because they hurt
0: themselves so much, I'm giving ALS $50. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, Tanner, so you've, you've, over the course of your life, you've had... Um, some things that you've been pretty passionate about right things that people honestly wouldn't necessarily expect and one of the things that um, we ask is what is something that um, you nerd out about that people would not expect like, we've already talked about the show choir thing we talked about um, your work in the arts-based nonprofit, your works your work in the medical nonprofit. Um, but there's also this other thing that you're passionate about um, this this You talk about wanting to have an impact a lasting impact this other thing that you're passionate about that a lot of people don't know or expect and that is what you phrase as conservation through hunting which i'm going to be honest sounds like a bit of an oxymoron yeah um, because you're saying well it's it sounds like an oxymoron help me understand help us understand um what the hell that means (laughs) yeah
2: i will um i think first start off quickly just my passion for it comes from my deep desire for me and my family to be connected to our food. Yeah. Um, I think in, in general, people are disconnected from the real world as we become more digital, more focused on those type of things. People, Especially kids nowadays, men are disconnected from reality. And so that's why I raise chickens in my backyard and we, we collect our own eggs. Um, that's why I start my kids off um, hunting at a young age so they can actually see what it takes to put a meat on the plate. Yeah, There's an appreciation that comes from that. Um, and so growing up in Iowa is readily available for me, but here in the city it's just not and I see how it changes people. I see how it changes their perspective and it's it's been a passion for mine for a long time, uh, fishing, hunting. And so the conservation through hunting thing, you know, I really over the past ten years have really educated a lot myself a lot more on why Americans have the ability to actually do this. Across the world, um, people do not have the ability to Enjoy our wild lands like we do here in the United States. Yeah, they're they're owned by they're owned by the government in most countries. Um, the wildlife is owned by the government. In America, our national parks, our federal parks, our wildlife parks, and wildlife is owned by the people. Hmm. Um, that is something that is beautiful, and Americans take for granted. Um, and so, the conservation through hunting thing comes from. Starting in the early 1900s, um, Americans began to realize that we were literally killing off our natural resources. Um, at that time in the early 1900s, white-tailed deer, turkey, elk were near extinction wow. um, because the value came and the pelts and the hides and the commercial value. The value is not seen as the individual being able to enjoy those things, to take them home to their, to their, to their dinner plates yeah. Um, but there is monetary value um, in, in, uh, in commer- commercializing that. Um, our government did something really smart back, led by Theodore Roosevelt, and decided to make those things um, valuable to the people. Um, and so the, there's several, actually, anybody can look them up online, but uh, throughout, uh, from early 1900s all the way through to about 1950, um, we established federal parks and federal reserves throughout the United States. Um, and it was done because we began to place value on the wildlife and the habitat outside of commercialization Um, the people who paid for that were hunters Um, the people that continue to pay for that are hunters Um, back in uh, about 1937 the Pittman Robertson Federal Federal Wildlife Management Act actually every time I buy ammunition or arrows uh, for my bow or archery equipment I pay an additional 10% for wildlife management.
0: Hmm.
2: People don't know any of those things until they do their research and history. Um, and so, uh, if we don't place value on those, uh, and since then, since all those acts are happening, since we've developed uh, the, the protection of these animals, and so, and that, then you bring science into it, right? You bring biologists and say the land can actually. Hold a certain amount of elk On this, prop, on this, on this piece of land Or a certain uh-huh. amount of white cell deer Outside of that, the capacity They'll actually die off because there's not enough food And so they use hunters to manage The population of the animals To actually keep them at a proper level um, And so that's how they manage Wildlife and manage the whole habitat it, And so It's a really interesting process We've actually been able to bring back several species near extinction From the early 1900s here in the U.S. Through that And so I straight nerd out. I I nerd out on it like crazy. Um, And if you don't place those value and hunters step out, um, there's no money left to preserve federal parks and wilderness and management. Um, And there's no, there's nobody to truly manage those populations either of those, of those uh, of wildlife. And so um, it's a, it's complex and the North American model of wildlife management and habitat um, has actually brought back. So in Africa, um, they adopted our model of conservation. Um, I think back in the '70s or '80s, it literally brought back countless animals from extinction, um, from the brink of extinction.
1: So how do you how do you reconcile <clears throat> the notion that the thing that saves um, animals and uh, saves animals' lives? Right. is funded by, fueled by, motivated by um, killing others. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Yeah. Um, those animals,
2: so that is an often asked question. Um, I'm, and you have to come from a certain ethos, right? I'm a believer that um, there's predator and prey, and anybody who eats meat can do it in an ethical way or a non-ethical way. Right. And so these animals are going to die Whether I shoot them or not They're going to get eaten torn apart by a wolf or a bear Or something That There's, there, there's a cycle to, to nature That we're either going to be a part of or we're not Humans mm-hmm. have decided During this time in history to say We're no longer going to be a part of this That's not true We're more a part of it than we have ever been The farming industry encroaches On wildlife more than anything ever And I come from Iowa I, I respect the farming community yeah. But, um, and so the way I justify that is I can support, um, eating meat in the most ethical way possible. I can either support it with my checkbook and go to the grocery store and supporting a massive system of factory farming, or I can choose to hike eight miles into the wilderness and archery hunt an elk and pack mm-hmm. it out and do it in a very ethical way. And so you talk about it comes down to ethics, right? It comes down to something to where, um, where if you eat meat, especially, I'll have a great conversation with a vegetarian about this, honestly. But I have a really frustrating time talking to people who eat meat, but get mad at me for hunting. Yeah, I'm like, so <laughs> as you're stuffing that, That's true, right? Like true. as your as you're stuffing a cheeseburger into your mouth, yeah, like you pig, you, you,
1: as you're eating <laughs> bacon,
2: right? Right. So you chose to kill with your checkbook right yeah. so i mean which is fine but don't begrudge me for choosing to do it in a way that i find very ethical yeah it was outsourcing
0: um, really yeah so it your carbon footprint right? is less than the carbon footprint footprint of the of the man or woman who wrote it with their checkbook yeah. because you know uh, my in-laws were in west texas and so as we drive out to west texas there are all the feed yards where mm-hmm. it's just hundreds on hundreds on hundreds of cattle just there for the sole purpose of being led to the literal slaughter. Nope. Uh, and
2: I think we have a hard time here in Texas because do you know how much of Texas is public land percentage? Mm-mm. What? 2%. Mm. Do you know wow. how much the western states on average public land? How much? 35 to 40%. Wow. And so it's hard for Texans to grasp the true power of public land and wild places. Because we don't have access to it. Yeah. Mm. You know? And so when you talk about, you know, and so experiencing that, I always encourage people to go experience your federal parks, your national parks, even some of your state parks. Because you can actually exercise the freedom you have of being an individual and owning those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we as Texans don't get the opportunity that really the, the whole western half of our country does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 a passion of mine, man. Um, it's something that uh, uh, gets me going and fuels me. Fascinating, man. If you get can if you uh, feeds you feeds <laughs> me. If you if you're on Peloton, <laughs> my handle is at fueled by nature on my on my Peloton bike.
0: <laughs> I'm not on Peloton. That, Are you on Peloton. That's smart, line? hey man.
1: I, uh, you, when one is on Peloton, what, what is that? What does that even mean? That you own a Peloton you're, bike and ride it on the reg
0: Like I you're in not. The,
2: you're in the community, you know what I mean? Ooh. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's super fancy. People.
0: Um, okay, Tanner, this is, this has been, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, just hearing about yeah. the, the variety of experiences and how kind of creativity has manifested itself a, across a bunch of different ways and how you've seen from one, uh, in the arts and how that's impacted what you do in medic, in medicine, your conservation and how that applies itself across, uh, across all the worlds that you live in. Um, we have, a, we have a segment um, that we, oh. we, we have uh, at the end of every episode. Byron, you ready? I'm you, ready. You ready? Yeah, here <laughs> we go. We have a segment. Uh, and the name of the segment, uh, in this segment, I'm going to tell you what it is first. Because I like to give, uh, I like to give uh, Byron both more time to figure this out and also to keep him in suspense. Uh, in this segment, I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you. You have not been given these questions, correct? Are you talking to me? Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Sorry. Have, wait, I'm, I'm have ready. you
0: been given the questions that I'm getting ready to <laughs> answer, ask you? Have you been given these questions before? I should probably answer that question after you ask me the questions. But no, no, no you, you have not told no, me. Yeah. any. Thank you. Good <laughs> lord, this is, you're like the worst person at a magic show. Uh, yeah. The oh, point I'm is, bad. you have not been given. Pick a card. Point. Any I have...
1: card. I have a credit card.
0: Can I use the credit card? (laughs) No, you said. Well, you said any card. You have not. You have not not prepped me. Okay, so we we want rapid fire. First thing off the top of your dome. All right. The name of the segment is quickly creative. Bra, bra. Quickly creative.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm getting warm. What?
0: I don't know what that
2: was.
0: (laughs) You said it, my red brothers. You say our West you, Indian brothers and sisters has you, just unsubscribed from our podcast. You, no, why'd you why'd you jump to West Indian, bro? That's not even what because I was doing.
1: You oh racist. God, that's not
0: what were you, you doing racist. then? Because I, I was, was hoping that, a, that you were doing I'm a bad doing West Indian accent.
1: I was doing a a, a mix of uh, many different things it's called a mashup. Okay, and yes, West Indian was part of it, but also also not. So okay,
0: let's let's whatever that freaking was, do was, it, Damani. It's fine. I am. I'm gonna do it right now. Tanner, right. here we go. Tree blind or deep sea fishing? Deep sea fishing. Classic country or classic rock? Classic country. Ice cream cone or snow cone? Snow cone. Ninjas or pirates? Pirates. Ketchup or salsa? Ketchup. Water burger or In and Out? Neither fair piercings or tattoos tattoos three favorite words no yes and grateful documentary or historical fiction historical fiction new year's eve or halloween new year's eve game of thrones or walking dead
2: game of thrones
0: game of thrones man i didn't see that one coming honestly and (sighs) lastly and most importantly jazz hands or spirit fingers jazz hands
2: now that treat that tree stand question five years ago I answer tree stand but man deep sea fishing has my heart right
0: now really yeah. that's good to yeah. know all right Tana, this is bragging yourself time anything you want people to know any place you want people to go look how can they find you if you want them to find you uh go talk to the people for ALS
2: stuff, just go to ALSTexas.org, check out all the awesome things we're doing. we got a regular blog you can check out um, on, on the site to check out what we're doing and some good stories from people here with ALS in Texas. Personally, just hit up at Tanner Hawk, Hawk spelled H-O-C-K. On the uh, Instagrams is mostly where I'm at. I don't really do the Twitter because it's a cesspool of negativity. Um, Affirmative. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Um, and the Facebook is just... I don't know. My grandma's on there, so it's like you know <laughs> what she used to be. Sorry, she passed now. But lots of people's grandmas are on Facebook. My wife, though, she's on Facebook. Hit her up. There. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, mostly on the Instagrams at at All right. Hawk.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, Tanner, thank you, brother. Thank you for taking the time to sit down uh, with us from and wait and wait and where thank are you recording from right now? Where are you recording from?
2: Oh, that's a camper in my backyard next to my chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> it's the
0: most. Is the, the most conservation through hunting thing I think I've heard all day. But I, I live in Dallas proper, so you know, just doing just doing it right. So, you, so you're in Dallas, in the middle of the city, yeah. in your camper, in your backyard, next to your chicken coop. Correct. All right. of that. Just wanted, just wanted to all make sure. It. Just wanted to make sure. Well, Tanner brother, thank you so much for taking thank the time you guys. to hang out with us. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun. Um, on behalf of the team at Casually Creative, yo. Uh, this is your favorite host, Damani, chief imaginary at the event nerd.
1: And your uber favorite host, Byron Sanders,
0: CEO of Big Thought. <laughs> Y'all stay dope. Stay dope! Casually Creative was produced by Heather Daniel of SweetRebel.com. Its intro and outro music were composed by Ezekiel Daniel and produced by Marcus Reddick and Dean Talbert. Feel free to check us out online at www.casuallycreative.com. Everyone living
1: is a type of creative. Everyone's got a land that they can create. Some people call them, for some people mistaken. If you can see it in your mind, you can make it.